1: and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.
0: Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello. uh, This is uh, Lynn of Lynn and Jen, and let's talk about sex. How are you doing today, Jen? I'm doing great. We're going to be talking uh, today about misogyny. Uh, which is really uh, a dislike, even a hatred or contempt uh, against women. And uh, in our culture, uh, there are many gender issues that play a role, but this has become a very significant one, I would say, during the last three or four decades.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think One thing we've done in the past is start out with defining terms and then kind of launch into the rest of it. And so I think that's really helpful here. Um, You just defined misogyny. I think it's also important to bring up the definition of sexism um, in in contrast, that they're not the same thing.
0: Right. And sexism are really prejudices that either sex females can have against males, males against females or females against females any any which way whereas misogynous really discreet hatred toward uh, women it's certainly been remarkably noted it during the last presidential campaign so there's been great awareness i think of it or growing awareness so one of the ways that
1: i've heard it described that i think is pretty helpful is that you know somebody who has a sexist idea might say something like You know, I think women should do child care because they're more nurturing. Women are just more nurturing, whereas somebody who has a misogynistic view might say, "You know, women should do child care because that's all
0: they're good for." Exactly. So there's a very negative or punitive component of it. Exactly. Um, We have to. I think we should say that uh, our discussion of this topic was stimulated by one of our sex spots, uh, which was about an article about uh, misogyny that came out in March of 2017, Meet the Woke Misogynist. And uh, that article is, is valuable, really, to jump off and enter into this conversation.
1: Yeah, so I think for those who haven't listened to our spotlight on sex about it, a brief summary of the article is really that this woman went on a date who she believed with a man who she believed was a feminist and they had great conversations they met over Tinder they had you know conversations over Tinder about feminist ideas and supporting women and she thought okay you know I'm going to give it a shot let me go meet this man and it turned out just a very quickly summarize it turned out that he held these very misogynistic beliefs and so she brought up this idea of you know is he an example of a woke misogynist meaning somebody who espouses feminist ideas talks about is able to hold a conversation about feminist ideas and and very much believes themselves to be a feminist and yet when you examine their behaviors it really shows that they're um, very misogynistic.
0: Yes. Um, in that uh, article, too, the uh, author, uh, Nona Aronowitz, refers to Elena Ferrenti's uh, quadrilogy of books uh, and uh, the hero, anti hero, uh, Nino Serratore, who is a kind of a aw- woke misogynist. I didn't even realize he was such when I was reading all of these books, but he's a character a male character that really winds through these four novels and interfaces with the two female heroines. And uh, as such, he's seen as a a more awakened man at the beginning. His father is uh, actually a child abuser, and he doesn't want to be that sort of person. But as the the four novels proceed, clearly he's pulled into this and becomes a different kind of character who really hates and uses women, yet pretends to be different. And I I think that's the key point to this. So uh, for those who are interested in reading more about this type of character, there's four novels out there that are brilliant anyway, but really hit this point uh, very hard.
1: Yeah, I think it's such an interesting concept for people, too, is I think what's really interesting is that you often get very polarized reactions. You know, I think there are women who are saying, wow, this person's a liar. There are men also saying this person's a liar. There's also a different perspective from a more psychological perspective that maybe he isn't necessarily lying, but he isn't fully aware, obviously, on a personal level.
0: Yes, and this has been my experience, really, with uh, many of the male patients I've had over years. Many are very aware, and I would say they light my world with some of their feminist beliefs. I've learned a great deal from them and how they act in relationships. Uh, But many uh, men that I've worked with uh, would describe themselves as being open to women, Um, but there are other parts of their lives that really take away from that. And I'm thinking of uh, one young man, though there are many young men that I've worked with, who've done a lot of video gaming. And uh, in that process, video gaming primes you to have negative views about women. And you could say more, I think, about that, Jennifer. Sure, just to
1: talk about what priming is. So it's a pretty basic concept, I would say, but it's a scientific concept where... Mm It really looks at how we build models, uh, frameworks of different ideas or people or subjects. And it really looks at this idea that we start out with one idea and we associate it with other things that are similar. And so I've heard it described when I was in college, you start out by looking at kind of how kids do this, right? And so maybe kids learn this is a cat. Cat is an animal. So they meet a dog. They go, oh, this is a cat because it's also an animal type thing. And then eventually they learn to differentiate. The other way I learned about it was also in talking about, you know, let's say you're thinking about laundry detergent, (laughs) but somebody's been talking about moon cycles and they've been talking about the ocean and they ask you, oh, you know, what is the laundry detergent that comes to mind? A majority of people will say Tide because it's associated. And so what these studies look at is how do we associate our beliefs and attitudes about women? And one of the studies looks at this priming in terms of video games. So video games are notorious for portraying women's bodies in a very specific way, in a very objectified way. And so they look at, by playing, you know, hours and hours, or even just a short-term video game, does it affect how these men, because the
0: studies are on men, view women in a short-term period? Exactly. And, uh, this was a struggle for, we'll talk about him as Eduardo. That's not his name, obviously, but Eduardo really enjoyed video games. Uh, but then, uh, In his dating activities, he carried through many of these ideas with his dating and his expectations, particularly about women and sex. And it affected his views of women's bodies. They had to be perfect, and if they weren't, he would say hateful things and the women would respond in a negative way. And uh, so as a result, his dating really didn't go that well. That's why he was in the therapy, to get some help with this. But what was interesting about it, and you and I have talked about this, um, Eduardo saw himself as a victim. Yeah. And he really couldn't understand why his dating wasn't going well. He espoused that he loved women, and he wanted to be with them, and he was an awakened man. But at the same time, there were these subtle And then, not so subtle exchanges that he had with the women that he was trying to have sex with.
1: Well, I think the idea too is, you know, there is a belief now, especially in the Bay Area, more and San Francisco in particular, that like being a feminist is a positive thing; it's a good thing, and and obviously, being a misogynist is not a good thing. And so, I think you know, if you ask somebody like, "Oh, are you a misogynist?" Of course, they're gonna say no. But then you look at. Do you believe certain things? You know, do you believe just that, you know, women owe you sex if you do if you buy them a drink? You know, things like that. You know, if you take if a woman goes home with you, does that mean you're going to have sex together? Different things like that. If you ask more specific questions, then you start to really get at the underlying attitudes.
0: Yeah, and uh, Nona Aronowitz's article really talked about this idea of owing. You know, and it can be not only men believing that sex is owed for men buying women a drink, but also women themselves can hold these views that they uh, have, are owed, they owe something for this type of service because misogyny can really be internalized by women that uh, in our culture and the women we work with. I think so,
1: and, and that's an important point to make, this thing about in, internalized misogyny, because I think it gets to a point where people look at certain women who are drawing sexual attention to themselves, and they say, well, look, they're doing it to themselves, so obviously misogyny doesn't exist, And I think it's really important to break it down and say, okay, but what drives somebody to do those things? Where does it come from? Were they always that way? Do they like that attention? Do they feel that's the only way they can get attention?
0: I think there's just a lot more behind it. And seeing these women as part of a culture where women have learned to objectify their own bodies. You know, they in many ways have learned to hate their own bodies and at the same time see them in an objectified way. And it starts really young. That's right. I I wanted to talk a a little bit about other women that I see who really have internalized misogyny. And this is a somewhat harder group to talk about because it fits my own group as a mother that I think there are mothers that have uh, really internalized misogyny, meaning they do not really like or appreciate their own bodies. They devalue themselves. And there's a kind of self-hatred that's really become part of that. And they treat their sons differently from their daughters. And uh, it's certainly a struggle, I think, in this culture to, to treat sons and daughters equally. Um, there's a lot written about it, but in, in action it doesn't always work out that well. I think uh in the past months too we've seen a number of women, you know, discount uh, women in power and in particularly political power. But uh, there's a group of women that hold misogynist beliefs, would not even acknowledge that. You know, as I said, I think it's internalized. And yet they really disregard and discount women in power. There's a very negative view toward women achieving uh, power at high levels. And a lot of that is misogyny kind of infiltrating the glass ceiling. And, uh, you know, it is the, you know, the cement that really goes into making that so hard to break.
1: Well, I think what's what makes it really hard to break, too, is because then you have women kind of pitted against each other. And that really erodes this unity that women could have in, in raising each other up and supporting each other. You know, I think the idea is that Women who support women, if you want to be a housewife, that's fantastic. That's a really hard job that you don't get paid for, and it requires a lot of effort. And that's fantastic. Go do that. And somebody who wants to work in a corporate environment, a woman who wants to work in a corporate environment, that's also a very hard, very stressful situation and very important to society. Fantastic. Go do that. And yet instead, you get a lot of the blaming back and forth, you get a lot of anger towards each other, and you're not having a conversation about, you know, how can helping women
0: help everyone? Exactly. And not seeing that having women in positions of power helps women, but it also helps men too it helps sons, it it helps the entire culture. And I I think we are hard pressed in a culture so infiltrated with misogyny to see how this would be very, very helpful to have powerful women.
1: Yeah. And I I think there's a backlash
0: against it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we actually gave a spot, uh, spotlight on uh, you know, one of the women in the Republican group who really was hit hard with this, too. So it, it really hits women of power across all levels, I think. So to be aware of that, that um, we're really looking at something that doesn't only affect men, but affects everyone directly in the culture.
1: I also think it's important to talk about, in a sense, kind of where does this misogyny come from? And I think it, it really comes from a place of entitlement and being raised with beliefs that, you know, one gender, one sex is better than the other. And I think it also, you get a lot of the anger that comes with the misogyny, I think, from a sense of that entitlement being threatened, but from somebody who doesn't see their own entitlement.
0: Yes, and, you know, you use the the phrase better. I think what I think about most people who have the view, they view it as this is the the kind of the power lines or the role lines that the different sexes should have. So they don't necessarily, you know, I'd agree with you, there is a value judgment placed on it, but their view would be, That this is the role men have always had. They should be in charge. They're doing a better job of it, that kind of thing. They're inherently better. They're inherently better. They have better social skills. They're looked up to, all of those things. So that fits with the entitlement. It's seen as really very much interwoven with role definition. But, you know, you look at that, uh, you know, and what it does, and then uh, kind of, particularly on the front lines, what it does. And you see these express views of misogyny, hatred of women and pushing women in in certain directions. And that is everywhere. And it does come, and I think it's gotten worse in the last 30 or 40 years, as women have competed directly in certain arenas that were more male-defined.
1: And I think it's interesting to talk about those perspectives because it, it is that sort of entitled victim flip where either, you know, I should be getting this. I deserve this or look at them. They're taking it away from me. Like that's mine.
0: Mm-hmm. That's such an important point, Jennifer, because I see so many people, men and women, you know, who have been in a position of entitlement don't really see it. And uh, then they feel like they're losing any aspect of it. And suddenly they're the victim and they attack the group. Exactly. And this is a big thing with gender from both sides, that there's that entitlement victim flip going on.
1: And I think it's it's that
0: flip that's really important to talk about, because that's where you get a
1: lot of the anger. You don't get the discussions. You, you don't get a broader understanding of how this helps people in general. Yeah, to have equality is
0: what I'm talking about. It's interesting about uh, the women I've worked with who have this kind of internalized misogyny, because they, in some ways, even see themselves as victims. There are these, yeah. there are these women out there who are doing things women shouldn't be doing, and they see themselves as the good women. And, uh, you know, who are kind of holding down the fort sort of thing. And uh, so it's uh, that process, whether it's occurring in men or women, is important to really look at. And I think gives us some insight as to why this is so hard to deal with and to address.
1: Well, I think it is a big change. And I think when change happens people tend to want to place blame somewhere. And so you get this sort of find-the-bad-guy game where you're going round and round, no, you're to blame, no, you're to blame. And obviously, like, that's not a very helpful place to be. But I think it's this idea that somebody has to be good, somebody has to be bad, instead of really being able to look at it and say, like, well, how is
0: this really playing out? I really agree with that because blaming um, someone, for changes that you don't like or don't feel comfortable with is part of really who we are as humans, you know, and I think recognizing that those negative emotions are, are part of our response to change really is the first step with this. Uh, So it's important, I think, to really look at blame as part of a process of change. And I think if people looked at that and said, oh, we're more likely to blame somebody such as Hillary Clinton at this time, you know, we recognize this, that offsets some of the very negative comments that are coming forward. And I think to talk
1: about some of what does come up, you know, we heard it a lot in the election, but certainly it was around before, is the idea that, people who are bringing to light examples of misogyny, they're often told, well, you're so easily offended. You know, like, why are you getting so offended? This is just a joke. Or, you know, why are you being the PC police? And I think it's really important to bring up those things because, one, like, that's not an accurate perspective. But two, is really that, you know, it's important to listen to when people are bringing something up and saying they're offended, instead of hearing that as blame, instead of hearing that as, you know, when I bring up I'm offended, I'm attacking you. It's really, no, well, let's look at, you know, what is driving this offensive feeling.
0: And one of the, the clues that, uh, You know, you're going to have a negative reaction often occurs, let's say you bring up as a woman, you bring up upset with some of these misogynist comments. And um, as you said, you get the commentary back, oh, it's just a joke, you can't take a joke. Um, I think for a long time, that response is just a joke has been the counter argument with it. And uh, I think well, learning, the counter argument to harassment. Exactly. I just exactly. wanted to highlight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think people being aware of that is really, really important. And I want to underscore what you said, learning how to listen. You know, I'm really saying I, I, I want to listen to you. I may have a different perspective. But I want to listen to how you you feel this to be. That's very important.
1: Yeah, and I think the reason people get responses like that is because nobody wants to label themselves as sexist. Nobody wants to go, oh yeah, I'm a sexist person, you know. And so when somebody brings up like you've offended me, it instantly brings up this defense of like, but I'm not a sexist, you know. And and so it's like, okay, but. Maybe I'm not saying you're a terrible person, which is often what other people hear. Maybe I'm saying this thing that you're doing, this is how it's perceived by other people. You might want to think about that. Is that the message
0: you want to portray? And you're bringing up another important point in, in, in how to discuss this. You want to focus on the behavior and not make it an ad hominem argument where you're arguing against the man or the woman involved. You know, so it's really more of a discussion of the ideas or the behaviors instead of a personal attack. And much of misogyny are personal attacks.
1: And I think it's important to understand that because we live in a misogynist society, a lot of us have misogynist, we have internalized misogynist ideas. And so even as a feminist, part of the journey is learning what are the ways that you have internalized misogynist ideas and attitudes?
0: Growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know, really so many misogynistic ideas were present around women's appearance. And that really Mm -hmm. altered, I think, my generation's Response and it's not still not recognized, and it's really the generation before young women experienced so many eating disorders. But there were very rigid lines about how women should behave and were expected to behave. So all of that is internalized, and then not seeing women in positions of power, you know, that's you know kind of a subtle misogyny where you just really never see a woman in a position of power. And one of the writers who's written about that is Margaret Atwood. And there's a new movie coming out of one of her books, The Handmaiden's Tale, which is really about a culture that goes to extremes in its right. viewpoint about women. But I think it's really, really important to think where our culture is today. That book has actually become a lot more popular given the
1: political climate that we're in. The sales have gone up because it's so relevant.
0: Yeah, it was a a very popular book when it came out. And uh, I think it raised the really questions for uh, young women, you know, 30, 40 years ago, really, but it's still current. And in fact, if anything, I think it's more obvious for the reasons we've talked about, you know, the, the struggle between the genders instead of the really the cooperative response. We're seeing more gender struggle and it shows up this way.
1: And i want to bring along with that is I don't know if you're familiar with the yes all Women hashtag on Twitter, but it's really this idea that i I think there are a lot of men who need to listen to women about their experiences because a lot of misogynistic men they will seek out opportunities where other men aren't present in order to harass or assault or you know do horrible things, abuse women, and so. In a sense, it's sort of if you don't see it, maybe you don't believe it. But how do you he- listen to the people who do see it and who do believe it? You know, Why do you think there are so many women who have these similar experiences and you really don't want to just dismiss all those experiences, even if you don't personally have that experience?
0: And you're pointing to one of the healthier responses to this. That women have spoken out as a group against this, and uh, women as a group are stronger. Really talking about it. So I uh, just in, in the last year or two, I've learned what hashtags are. A couple of years, but you know, yes, all women, you know, refers to an experience that uh, almost universally women face, and they report it as such. It's very powerful.
1: Yeah, and I think to just see how many responses there are, you know, and how similar they are, and how how young a lot of these women are.
0: Yeah, when and they have
1: their first exp- encounter with it.
0: And it brings up uh, about thirty years ago. I wrote an article on sexual harassment of girls uh, in elementary and in high school, and uh, it uh, is a huge problem uh, that girls face this early on. Um, they're struggling with it, and they really develop in the context of this type of harassment. And thinking of the struggles that we experienced this fall and open discussion around harassment that led to the yes, all women hashtag. It really is about this experience that all women have some experience with harassment. The reported rates in the United States are between 70 and 80% of girls in a high school setting.
1: And I think along with that is is this idea that it it also becomes almost normalized. So going back to the idea of priming, right? Priming is very important because it it you know it's associated with whether or not you see something as problematic, and people who are primed with more misogynist. Viewpoints, which our society does through video games, through, you know, social media, through work and availability of occupations and professions, and just, you know, the list is endless, but
0: through politics. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, that it, it all these things subtly prime for people to have these negative attitudes towards women. And as we talked about, it, it can be internalized by men and
0: women. Exactly, and it brings us back to our point, uh, uh, our main point uh, of these podcasts is really that conversations need to happen. It's one of the ways to really attack these not understood and often insidious, you know, factors that really prevent us from having greater sexual equality. Uh, so I relish these conversations with you, Jennifer. <laughs> I relish these too. I just wanted to add a
1: tiny little thing right in the end, which is that what I've seen in working with families is a lot of times I'll get you know fathers who start out with more of these misogynistic ideas, and they're raising daughters. And as their daughters hit around middle school, even elementary school, but often around middle school, they start to see kind of the world that their daughters are living in. And they start to really question about things. And that is really what changes their experience, you know, is the stories, is the personal relations, is being able to have conversations about what's going
0: on. I I think you bring up the conversations with fathers and daughters, but also the identification and love that fathers have for daughters. They can feel themselves in the shoes of their daughters and they recognize what this world might be like for girls. The empathy. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.